Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because in this episode, I have a lot to talk about. On episode 13 of My American Melting Pot, I'm going to be doing my very first solo show because I felt I needed to take this opportunity to defend my favorite word, diversity. I need to drag diversity out of the mud and restore it to its rightful place in our social activism lexicon. Because right now, diversity is the word that everybody, and I do mean everybody, loves to hate. So I'm going to tell you how I became diversity's biggest fan. I'm going to tell you about the people who do actually hate diversity and why. I'm going to share with you my definition of diversity, a definition that differs from what most people are complaining about these days. And finally, I'm going to share two versions of the future with you. Version A, where we continue to dismiss diversity, and version B, where we learn to embrace it. But before we can get to our diversity discussion, you know we have to take a break for a melting pot minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by The More You Know. The more you know, the more you grow. The more you know. Hello, Melting Pot community. We're recording this episode in early May 2019. The big news out this week comes from the British royal family. Meghan Markle, or as I like to refer to her, Princess Meghan, just gave birth to a healthy baby boy. Not surprisingly, The media has gone crazy about this new baby because he is the first mixed-race royal, and that poses a lot of questions for people. I've seen headlines questioning whether or not the baby will identify as Black, whether his parents will raise him to identify as Black. I've seen social media commentary about what he will actually look like, his hair, his nose, all of the things people look to to determine Black identity. And the list goes on. Basically, we're having a public reckoning of what mixed-race identity really means. Well, here's a funny coincidence. Did you know that May is Mixed Experience History Month? Wait, you've never seen that on a calendar? Well, it turns out that Mixed Experience History Month was created by self-proclaimed Afro-Viking Heidi DeRoe. Heidi is the author of the book The Girl Who Fell from the Sky and the founder of the Mixed Remixed Festival. She launched Mixed Experience History Month way back in 2007 in order to, quote, claim a history she felt she had been denied as a person of African-American and Danish heritage. This is what she wrote on her website, quote, Part of the difficulty of claiming one's identity in the mixed experience is that we have no history. Our stories have been written out of the texts to conform to what society has allowed us to say about our racial identities. And usually that has either silenced our experiences or simplified them, unquote. So Heidi decided to tell those stories in all of their ethnic and cultural complexity for Mixed Experience History Month. That meant every day in the month of May, Heidi would profile a historical figure of mixed heritage on her website, themixedexperience.com. She wrote about famous mixed faces you might already know, like the author Nella Larson, and people you may have never known were actually mixed, like Harlem Renaissance icon Arturo Schomburg or abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Yep, he was mixed. 
I don't think Heidi continues to update her blog every May, but the archives are still live, and it would take days, maybe even weeks, to read all of the profiles of mixed people she compiled between 2007 and 2017. I still haven't read them all. But as a Black mother raising mixed kids, I know I need to constantly remind myself that being mixed is its own unique identity. It's not a 21st century trend that Meghan Markle invented, and it's definitely not a tragic in-between place that requires healing. Quite the contrary. What we should be doing is celebrating the unique cultural heritage and significant contributions that people of mixed race heritage have made to our country and culture throughout the month of May and for the rest of the year as well. Happy Mixed Experience Month. And now, let's talk about diversity. Welcome to My American Melting Pot. It's me, the diversity diva. I wanted to take this opportunity to restore diversity's place in our cultural context because it's getting a bad name. Diversity is not a dirty word, and yet people right now are really hating on it. The haters are everywhere. So I thought I would take this opportunity to share with you my thoughts about diversity. I'm going to tell you how I became diversity's biggest fan, I'm going to tell you about the people who hate diversity and why they do. I'm going to share with you my definition of diversity, which is a definition that differs from what most people are hating on. I like to call it diversity 2.0. And finally, I'm going to share with you two versions of the future. Version A, where we continue to dismiss diversity as something superfluous and a buzzword that corporations are using. And version B, where we learn to embrace it. Clearly, version B is what I'm rooting for. So let's begin. How did I become diversity's biggest fan? My first experience with diversity was with my very first friend, the friend I made on my own. I was four years old and her name was Miko McGinty. And judging just from her name, you might be able to guess that Miko McGinty was mixed race. Miko's mom was Japanese and her father was Irish American. Miko's family showed me for the first time that families could be diverse. Not only were they the first interracial couple and multiracial family that I'd ever met, but Miko's family also exposed me to Japanese culture. So I learned things like calling grandma and grandpa jicha and bacha. I learned how to eat with chopsticks. I ate tofu and seaweed for snacks instead of chips and dip like I did in my house. And I really just loved this idea of difference in this friendship that I had. I learned not just, I mean, Miko and I were great friends and we rode our big wheels and we played and we read books and did everything that four and five and six-year-olds would do normally, but I also got this extra exposure to a different culture and that thrilled me. It also thrilled me that when Miko and I went out, we were two girls who were different, like compared to the majority white spaces we were often in because we went to the same school and we were on the same swim team. And so when we would walk around together in Milwaukee, people actually mistook us for twins. Me, a little black girl with my little Afro puffs, and Miko with her black straight hair. Just because we were both different, people saw us as the same. And I think that was my first taste of what diversity felt like and how it could bond me to people who were different from me, but we still had that shared experience. So after being friends with Miko, after having that friendship, which was formative in my young years, as I continued on through school... I found myself always searching for friends who were also other. So my friends in grade school and in high school 
were the other girls and boys who were ethnically different. Because I went to a school where I was the only black female in my graduating class. Um, and there were two black males in entire my entire grade. That my friendships were with the one Indian girl, the one Korean American girl. And I had white friends, of course, as well. But I was always making connections with others. And that's where our bonds were. Because we could relate to each other as people who were ethnically different from the majority culture. By the time I went to college, the same thing. When people would see me with my friends in college, they would often say, wow, you guys look like a group from the United Nations. And this, again, was just my way of moving about in all white spaces was to create and cultivate a group that was diverse. This worked for me. This was my salvation. This was how I survived in mostly white spaces was to build coalitions, communities, friend groups that were made up of different people like myself because there was no majority except for a white majority. And the way that we became strong, the way that we felt supported was by finding others like us. We were the group of others. When I became a parent, my husband and I, I married a Spanish man, so I created my own little diverse family. We lived in New York City, which is kind of de facto diverse. We can talk about that later. But New York City is one of the most diverse places where you could live. But when it came time to choose a place to raise our family, we weren't going to raise our family in New York City. We found a community in Philadelphia called Mount Airy. It was a planned community in the sense that they wanted it to be a diverse community and they worked to create it to be that way, much like Shaker Heights, Ohio and other communities where people worked intentionally to create an integrated and diverse community. And that has shown me that diversity takes action and it takes intention. And finally, I became a big fan of diversity when I was searching for a religious home in my 20s when I lived in New York. I'd stumbled upon the Baha'i faith, which was a religion that actually incorporates diversity into their doctrine and their faith beliefs. It wasn't that they just had a diverse congregation. They actually had diversity as one of their guiding principles. So I joined the Baha'i faith when I was in my 20s because I saw that even on a spiritual level, in a religious um, community, diversity could be a guiding principle of one's spiritual life as well. So from religion to friendships to neighborhoods to marriage and family, I understood that diversity works, and that when it works, it's a beautiful, healthy, spiritually uplifting force. And that's what it's been in my life. I've seen diversity work for me personally as a wife and a mother. I've seen it work in social situations and in neighborhoods. I've seen it work in faith traditions and in corporate America. So I don't need convincing that diversity works, but other people do. Let's talk about those people. So, who hates diversity? The left's concerns for equal rights for all has been replaced by the diversity agenda, which is a destructive obsession with race. And that's what diversity means. Diversity generally means on college campuses, shut up lest you make some people uncomfortable because diversity can't thrive where people disagree. Everybody has to agree in order for diversity to really bloom. Diversity is it's really bad in all aspects of the American system. This is why uh, America in the United States is uh, really unstable. 
There are two camps of people who hate the word diversity. And like most things in America, those camps are divided by race. Big surprise. So let's start with why white people are uncomfortable with the word diversity. Then we'll move on to black people and other people of color. When we think about why white people get uncomfortable or dislike the word diversity, and of course, not everybody finds it as offensive as you heard in those clips, but for a lot of white people, diversity makes them uncomfortable. Talking about it, seeing it on the agenda at work, when somebody comes up to you at school and wants to bring up the diversity issue, it gets their hackles up, makes them uncomfortable. They'd rather talk about anything else, but there are many reasons why white people bristle at the word diversity. And they don't just bristle at the word. They bristle at what it's going to mean for them. Like I said, there are many different reasons. And I wouldn't even pretend to say that these are all the reasons or that these are your particular reasons. But these are kind of generally, you know, we can break these down into three general categories. And the first one is this connection to colorblindness. A lot of white Americans want to say that they don't see race. They believe by being colorblind, and I'm putting air quotes around that, they believe that by being colorblind, they are doing the work of eliminating racism because they don't see race. So if you are saying that we're going to do diversity work, then that means you're going to have to see race because diversity implies we're going to bring in people who are different than you, who are different races to the table. Now, If you are going to do that, again, anytime you have that conversation about race, it puts people, particularly white people, on edge. They know they're going to be blamed for something. They're going to have to feel guilty about things. And they want to say that racism was in the past and we are in a new era now and it's over. We can get past race. We're in a post-racial society. Barack Obama was president. Oprah's a billionaire. All of these excuses to say we don't see race. Well, it's not just seeing race. Color blindness doesn't just eliminate people's skin color. It also eliminates their story. It eliminates their history. You're not recognizing any of the things that make people uniquely them. You're not recognizing what they had to go through to get to where they are. A person's color is only one-tenth of their story. Their color, their race, their culture, it's all part of who they are. And when you don't see color or you don't see race because we're all part of the human race. Like all of those platitudes really serve to erase who people are and what they've had to do to get to where they are today. And that doesn't serve anybody's purpose except those who want to keep their head in the sand and maintain the status quo. Two, there is a fear of change. If we're talking about diversity, again, talking about it in a way where there's some sort of actionable items about diversity, then People assume that there's some change that's going to have to happen, and nobody likes change. Change makes people uncomfortable. And particularly if the change is imagined to be somehow my culture has to change. If we're going to bring in more diverse people and they bring in their cultures, then somehow my culture is going to have to be changed or diminished or it's not going to be important anymore. I don't want that. I like my culture. I like the way things are done. I understand the way things are done. And you talking about diversity signifies to me that I'm going to have to change. And number three, I call this the affirmative action argument. When people hear, particularly when we're talking about white people, when they hear about diversity, again, when we're talking about diversity action in some way, people assume diversity means bringing in 
somebody of a different race or different ethnic background to take the place of a white person. That's why I call it the affirmative action argument, that somehow increasing our diversity numbers is like how people hear it in corporate America means that Jenny or Biffy is going to lose their job so that Deshaun and Shaquita can come in. This idea of someone's going to take our job, someone's going to take our place. And again, that's the affirmative action argument, and it's completely untrue. This tends to be a scarcity mindset when you look at it, like there's a scarce number of resources and bringing in a person of color suddenly means that a white person is going to lose their job, their opportunity, and more importantly, their power. So just to repeat, we've got confronting our colorblindness or talking about racism, which makes particularly makes white people very uncomfortable, a fear of change. Anything that's going to require me to alter the way I've always been doing things is uncomfortable and unpleasant. And finally, the affirmative action argument. So that's where I kind of place the resistance to talking about diversity and really embracing diversity for white Americans in particular. Now, I'm an equal opportunity critic, so let's talk about why black people and other people of color are uncomfortable or hate the word diversity. It breaks my heart to say it, but some of my favorite power brokers in Black America hate the word diversity. Oprah Winfrey has removed the word diversity from her vocabulary. Ava DuVernay, Shonda Rhimes have gone on record saying that they hate the word diversity. Breaks my heart. Here's what Ava DuVernay said in a 2015 speech that she gave. Quote, I really hate the word diversity. Oh, I just don't like it. It feels like medicine. Diversity is like, ugh, I have to do diversity. I recognize and celebrate what it is, but that word to me is a disconnect. There's an emotional disconnect. Inclusion feels closer. Belonging is even closer. So I just want us to think about belonging. Think about who belongs and welcoming people into that belonging. Unquote. That was Ava DuVernay in a 2015 speech that she gave. And she's given many other um, speeches and talks about why she hates the word diversity because it really doesn't accomplish what really needs to happen in the entertainment industry and um, in life in general. Shonda Rhimes has a similar idea about diversity and how the word bothers her. She said, quote, I really hate the word diversity. It suggests something other, as if it is something special or rare, diversity, as if there is something unusual about telling stories involving women and people of color and LGBTQ characters on TV. I have a different word for it, normalizing. I'm normalizing TV. I am making TV look like the world looks, unquote. It's hard to argue with that. The thing is, though, that Shonda, particularly Shonda Rhimes and Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey, these are three women who are literally leading the way in diversity work. They're just calling it something different. They're champions of creating spaces, places, and products that are wildly diverse. They're doing all the diversity work, but they're calling it something different. For Ava, it's inclusion. For Shonda Rhimes, it's normalizing. So what we have to do then, I think, is to take a cue from what these women are saying. They're not saying don't do the work. They're saying do the work, but make it mean something. 
And if the word feels meaningless, then there's something wrong with not the word, but how people are interpreting it. And that's why I have my own definition of diversity. I think we can keep the word. I think we can wrestle it out of the realm of useless buzzwords and restore it to its rightful place. We've done that with other words, and I don't think diversity is any different. Diversity is our birthright as a country that was literally built by a diverse group of people. Not to say that everybody was equal and happy to be there, but this country was built by diversity. The things that we consider our American culture is an example of diversity in action, right? And we can't ignore diversity because it literally is our birthright. We can't ignore diversity because it is American. It's as American as our fondness for reality TV, hot dogs, and delivery services that will bring us munchies in the middle of the night. So before I get to what diversity really is, I want to reiterate what diversity isn't. Diversity isn't a majority white space with some sprinkles of a Black person, an Asian person, a Latino person. That's not diversity. That is tokenism, okay? That's not diversity. Diversity isn't defined by the white gaze. Think of all the ways that people use the word diversity incorrectly because we're basing it on a white version of the world. You could have an all-Black neighborhood. That doesn't make it a diverse neighborhood. It makes it a Black neighborhood or it makes it a Latino neighborhood or an Asian neighborhood. If something is predominantly of color or people of color, does not say diversity. Diversity isn't reverse racism. Diversity isn't a gentrified neighborhood. Diversity isn't a box on a form that you can check and say it's done. Diversity doesn't mean inviting people of color into all white spaces and then forcing them to behave as if they are also just like the white people there already. That is forced assimilation. That is not diversity. So what is diversity? I remember I promised that I was going to give you a new version of diversity, a new definition, diversity 2.0. Well, here it is. Even though the dictionary, it says that diversity is a noun, scrap that. Diversity is a verb. Diversity is an action word. Say it again, Lori. Diversity is an action word. You have to do diversity. Diversity looks like being intentional with your choices. It's being intentional with who you invite to the table. It's being intentional with the books you read, the TV shows you watch, the movies you support with your dollars. Diversity is something that you actually do every day with your thoughts, with your actions, with your money, with where you choose to live, with where you choose to send your children to school, with the politicians you choose to support. Diversity doesn't happen. You make it happen. It is action. Number two, diversity has a twin. And that twin's name is inclusion. If diversity is an action, it's a two-step action. It's a two-step process. If you bring diverse members into a space and just leave them there, you have not achieved diversity. You also have to change the culture in that place to accommodate the people who are in that space. And you have to change the culture not to make it, oh, now this space is going to be a mostly Black culture or mostly Asian culture or mostly Latino culture. You have to change the culture so that it is accepting 
and inclusive so that people can bring their whole selves to that table, not be afraid to express their whole selves, and use their unique experiences to improve whatever that place is. So if it's a neighborhood, a school, or a corporate boardroom, the inclusion factor comes where you don't say, yeah, you can come here, but you cannot wear your hijab to the office. And number three, we have to alter the way we look at diversity in the workplace in particular, but everywhere. Diversity should not be an aspirational goal. Diversity should be a requirement. If we want to be successful, you want to have a successful school, you want to have a successful business, you want to have a successful neighborhood, then diversity should be a requirement, not an aspirational goal. And if something is a requirement, there should be consequences if that requirement is not met. If that was the case, then people who say, you know, diversity doesn't mean anything, it's meaningless, then that would change because it would mean something. It would mean something very significant. When we talk about businesses, for example, business has to make a profit. That's a requirement for business. If the business wasn't making a profit, somebody would get fired or they would completely change their systems until the profit was made. If diversity became a requirement, just like profit is to any other corporation, things would happen. It would get done. And I think that's one of the ways that we change what diversity means by making it a requirement in all things and not just an aspirational goal that can be blown off, that can be, you know, checked off on a box without actually showing a change or a difference. That brings me to my last point, my two versions of the future that I promised. I'm not unaware that doing diversity is hard work. I'm not unaware that change is difficult and hard for everybody. And it's important to understand that people of color are just as adverse to change as white people are. But there is a power dynamic here that's very clear, that because we live in a system, we live in a society of white supremacy, we live in a system, in a society where white people do have the power, the onus to embrace diversity is in a large part on white people. They're the ones in power who have to make diversity a requirement and they have to do it right. They have to use my version of diversity, Lori's diversity 2.0 definition. This isn't easy. If you look at history and the current geopolitical situation, there aren't a lot of countries that have figured out how to do diversity, how to do it well. There's de facto diversity in many, many countries, but it doesn't mean it's working well. We are a nation that people look to as a country that has figured out how to make diversity work. And it does work. It literally is our greatest strength. We have achieved so much of what we've achieved because of the contributions of all different types of people who have brought with them from their places of origin, solutions, cures, innovation, problem solving, everything, because we have literally embraced diversity. And right now we're in a place where it feels like diversity isn't working anymore in this country. It feels like the diversity is splitting us up. So version A of our future looks like us continuing on a road where diversity is dismissed, where we've given up on diversity, where we say it doesn't mean anything, it's useless, and we retreat to our own separate camps and work only with our own tribes and our own groups, and we become very tribal, and things will fall apart. There are so many examples of that happening all over the world where people retreat to their tribes and things fall apart. And it's usually violent and ugly. Version B is where we embrace our diversity. 
We embrace our differences. We figure out how to work together. We figure out how to celebrate what makes each one of us unique and different. And we bring those talents and skills to the table, to the neighborhoods, to the schools, and we rise above and we become super successful. All of the research shows that diversity is good for America. And this is why this is so silly to me, because the research is there. Study upon study has been done to show having a variety of perspectives helps new ideas to develop, new ideas that will solve things like global climate change, that will solve things like world hunger, that will solve things like violence in schools and violence on the streets. Like, it's right there in every kind of, there's no way to dispute that problem solving is improved with diverse people at the table. We also know that ethnically diverse companies perform better than those that are, I guess you would consider like monocultural, if that's a word. But there are statistics that show that ethnically diverse companies perform 33% better than those companies that are not ethnically diverse. Forbes Best Workplaces for Diversity enjoy 24% higher revenue growth compared to their non-diverse counterparts. And it's not only about money. But corporations, which are, you know, microcosms of a society in a way, show us that the ones that are the most diverse are the most productive, the most successful, and have the highest profits. So I shouldn't really have to convince you that diversity works. The proof is there. Diversity works, and all we have to do is embrace it. We have to be willing to make room for the people behind us and next to us, whether they look like us or speak a different language or not. We should bring everybody to the table and let everybody have a voice. And that's the version of our future that I see. We are the United States of America, which is a wonderful collection of so many different races, ethnicities, and religions. And God forbid we ever get to a point where we, quote unquote, transcend our race. What makes America so rich, so powerful, so strong is our diversity. And I want to be a, a person that is who I am fully. That was one of diversity's biggest fans and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Thank you for listening to My American Melting Pot. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, please take a minute to leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you don't like writing reviews, you can just tell a friend the old-fashioned way. Thanks. Now, before you go, remember you can find the show notes for today's episode on the My American Melting Pot blog just by visiting myamericanmeltingpot.com backslash the podcast. And an archive of every episode will pop up. You can also find fresh new Melting Pot content on the blog every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And don't forget, we just launched the My American Melting Pot book club. Our first selection is the amazing new memoir about life, love, death, and the power of food and family. It's called From Scratch by Tembi Locke. Now you can follow The Melting Pot on social for all the updates about the book club. Episode 13 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. Our PR and marketing guru is Darian Muka, and our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you as always for listening, and don't forget to always live your life in color. <laughs>